This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Education Grantmakers Advocacy Consortium, TGAC, and our members work to protect, promote, and improve public education in Texas for all students. Connect with us at TEGAC.org. And Every Texan, the Center for Public Policy Priorities, has changed its name to Every Texan. Their long-lasting mission remains the same. Learn more at EveryTexan.org. And welcome to the June 3rd edition of the Texas Tribune TripCast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hi. Photo editor Miguel Gutierrez, who is joining us for the first half of this. Hey, how's it going? Managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Who has a gremlin on his window sill that you all cannot see, but it is quite creepy. <laughs> he has a laptop computer. He's like a he's like an extra tribute. Oh God. <laughs> okay. So we are nearly a week into protests and demonstrations across the country over the death of George Floyd. Floyd, who was black, died after a white police officer named Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck for nearly nine minutes. The police officer has since been fired and charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. And obviously, following Floyd's death, we've seen sort of this widespread anger and protesting against police brutality and racial injustice. The weekend really was one of protest and mourning across the state, like in so many other communities across the country. So let's let's start there. Miguel, you've been out at these protests and have also been working with our photographers documenting what's happening in Houston and Dallas. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen and what our photographers have been capturing on the ground. Uh, it seems like it's been a mix. It's been a mix of you know, some uh, definitely tense situations, some violence, and then also uh, just very peaceful moments. I was actually out last night at the Capitol and at APD headquarters in Austin. And in Austin, um, APD and protesters were discussing, they were having conversations, they were sitting on the ledge. Um, and at the Capitol, it was uh, some of the organizers were advocating for peace and advocating for people to keep coming out, but to keep it, you know, very civil and to not um, give the police department or the state troopers a reason to, to fire on them. Um, but then on Saturday night, I was out there, and it was a completely different story. I mean, it was water bottles being thrown and uh, police firing beanbags, firing um, uh, rubber bullets, uh, tear gas canisters, uh, running under the bridge. Uh, there's a few times I had to duck things that, you know, just you just don't know where they're coming from, you know, and so you're just running all over the place. So it's been a, it's been a mix. And the same thing in, uh, in, in Dallas and in Houston where— on Friday night, our photographer uh, Shelby T Tabor, she's a, one of our freelancers, I was up there, and it was it was uh, a, a lot, you know, like I was on the phone with her talking, and all of a sudden, a, a tear gas canister exploded, and I just heard her hear her cussing and start running, and I'm like, yes, just go, just go, just go. We'll, we'll talk later. So, um, I think it's been it's been a mix. Yeah, I mean, I feel like these, the there are things that are diff that feel different about these protests in terms of how sustained they have been and obviously how widespread they have been. But they also feel different, certainly from the standpoint of police escalation. And and there's this like back and forth that we've seen from elected officials and leaders about what is okay and what is right. But I've been trying to kind of 
parse through what is normal when you when the people you are protesting are the people who you are also who are also in charge in an event like this and have power of escalating things in an event like this. What have you all made of sort of the the tactics that we have seen so far? I think it's incredibly hard to make sense of, you know, what we're talking about is a lot of different people out in the streets, a lot of different police departments and law enforcement agencies responding to this. And I think one of the big challenges for the media, for people out here is to just kind of piece together a cohesive narrative of what's happening, you know, who is doing what and all those types of things. I mean, what we can definitely say is, is that we've seen, you know, rubber bullets, um, you know, people, police officers in riot gear, uh, the deployment of tear gas, those kinds of, you know, coercive methods, you know, in these protesters. I think there are a lot of questions that remain to be answered that we're working on getting the answers, but, you know, it's also challenging about kind of what's driving the police to do this and are they taking kind of appropriate steps? You know, I think like one of the big questions here that I've been wondering is, you know, we see protests in downtown Austin all the time. You know, you look at uh, whether it's people carrying, you know, automatic weapons, aka, you know, uh, assault rifles, you know, marching on the steps, protesting reopening, um, or, you know, the women's march that you would see, you know, a couple of years ago, where basically the entirety of downtown was filled with people and things like that. And, you know, one of the things I would like to know and wondering is, you know, what caused police to approach this one differently? You know, why what makes when do the police officers make a decision of this is a, a protest where I'm going to come kind of hang out on the outsides in my normal kind of police officer equipment and observe, but kind of allow people to do their thing? When when do we need to show up with the, you know, kind of the full cavalry, the the um, the riot gear and that kind of thing? And then what effect does that have when that's what the police officers are wearing and doing, you know, and then, you know, what we hear a lot about stories about people who have been, you know, on sidewalks who've gotten tear gassed or, or arrested or told to leave, you know, how is that different than what's being done in other protests? You know, a lot of this is just kind of a fog because it's, it's happening at night, it's happening all over the place. And, you know, our reporters and other reporters out there can't have their eyes on everything that's happening at the same time. But, you know, I think like, I, so I'm not sure we'll get great answers to all these questions, but I think they're, they're serious questions that we should all kind of be asking of our police and, and the people out there? You know, I don't think the police are immune from the messaging at the top. I mean, if, you're, if you've got leaders who are talking in a militaristic way, you know, certainly the president's been doing that. Uh, to some extent, some of the state leaders have been doing that more, I would say, probably the lieutenant governor than the governor, but, you know, sort of forceful language and, um, you know, this must be stopped and these are not protesters, these are criminals, that kind of stuff. That gets down to the police. I mean, they go in, you know, that sets the tone for the official response and the police are the manifestation of that response. I, you know, I think those things go hand in glove. Yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead, Matthew. Well, I was just going to ask Miguel, I mean, as someone who's been out there multiple times, have you seen changes, you know, from what happened, you know, early last weekend until, you know, last night or the is it getting more tense, less tense? Are there more more or less people, fewer people out there? Is, or is it pretty much stayed steady? What I've seen is uh, there's there's been less people. Uh, the crowd has definitely gotten smaller from what it was on Friday uh, or on Saturday, I should say, in Austin. Um, Saturday was the biggest that I saw, uh, even Saturday night. Uh, it's been a lot smaller. 
there has been more of a call from I've seen some uh, some of the organizers and activists being uh, advocating, uh, you know, um, people to be to, to not instigate the police and to and to really kind of, you know, not. Um, yeah, not instigate them. But I, yeah, that's, that's, that's the biggest kind of change I've seen. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, of messaging and, and the movement that these protests are a part of, there have been some observations that this has felt different from previous protests and responses. I mean, obviously, certainly from a police escalation standpoint. But, you know, we've also been talking to organizers who have noted that there are more people protesting than there have been before, but also that there are more non-Black people joining in, or simply that it's harder for someone to look away in all of this. I, I can't seem to remember a protest of this sort that wasn't like a one-day thing like the Women's March mm-hmm. that has felt so sustained that we are going into the weekend thinking that it's possible that this will continue into that. Do you all agree that at least in terms of bringing people out in sort of this like collective response and protest that this feels different? I, I, I would I would say so. Um, there was a lot of uh, a talk yesterday about keeping the movement going. Um, first of all, it was really it was really diverse. The crowd it wasn't it wasn't huge. This is just Austin because uh, I mean it sounds like the, the the demonstration in Houston yesterday was huge. Uh, it was pretty big, um, and uh, like a few nights before the one in Dallas when people were on the bridge, it was, it was pretty sizable too. But in Austin, uh, some of the organizers that were there were really talking about sustaining this and coming out, you know, every night and just kind of being peaceful, but coming out every night. And re- they really wanted to emphasize that. And I emphasize that because they were emphasizing that um, because there were some groups that were trying to taunt the police and they were like, we don't want that. Like, you know, we need to stop that. We really want to, our message to be clear and not get muddled in this other stuff. So, but it, it, did, it did seem like they were like in it for the long run and wanting to sustain it. So we've also been parsing through the responses or lack of responses from Texas leaders and elected officials. Alex, you wrote some of these up starting on Friday with the governor's, I guess, first comments, um, and obviously into the weekend as more electeds weighed in. What have you seen in those comments so far or in, in the even the governor's kind of first response or reaction to this? Yeah, so the governor first weighed in um, sometime on Friday, I believe early afternoon, where he called the death of George Floyd horrific. Um, And I think that's been sort of the resounding response um, among Texas officials, regardless of party. I think everyone's sort of in agreement that this was an act of police brutality that easily could have been avoided. Um, So Abbott's been very uh, vocal and just reiterating that this was an act of police brutality and that, you know, again, that the death was horrific and shouldn't have happened. He re- he said that yesterday um, at a press conference that he held with Dallas officials. Um, I think the thing that seems to be sort of dividing politicians right now is the response um, and what we've seen at the protests. Um, so sometimes we've seen uh, theft, you know, destruction of property. And I believe it was on Monday where um, in D.C. Uh, law enforcement used tear gas to sort of disperse peaceful peaceful protests to make way for the president. And so when we see uh, things like that, I feel like that's been what's more dividing um, along more partisan lines. And I feel like Republicans um, and even the governor have been sort of uh, 
hesitant to sort of criticize the president during this time. And I feel like that sort of started last week after the president sent a tweet implying that protesters could get shot. And since then, a lot of Republicans have been silent. I've seen as far as actively criticizing the president, sort of his role um, in all this. Yeah, you know, the one thing where Abbott has kind of gone in the different direction of the president is, you know, we we heard the president on Monday, I believe, talking about, you know, sending the uh, the U.S. military out to states to, to get control of these things. And then also a little bit of an indication of, you know, whether there would be a request for state national guards to send or to states to send their national guards to D.C. And one thing, you know, Abbott was very clear on when he spoke yesterday was saying, you know, uh, we don't need the military here and we don't need uh, and we're not going to be sending our National Guard to Washington, D.C. You know, that said, you know, he was specifically asked on television Monday night about uh, Trump, who kind of made a he kind of implored governors to, uh, you know, take more control of this, you know, seeming to be advocating for more force to be used against the protesters out in the streets. When Abbott was asked, asked about that, he kind of, you know, sort of dodged the question, uh, you know, kind of saying, you know, what Trump wants to do is make sure that the the violence is ending here. But, you know, definitely did not go out and criticize kind of the rhetoric that uh, Trump has, um, in a lot of ways, gone farther than a lot of other Republicans kind of across the country in terms of like saying, you know, what, what should be done about these protests right now. Abbott was also um, put much more stress on that he, you know, he almost sounded like he was with the protesters. He wasn't for the violence. He's not for the vandalism. But he was much more empathetic with the protesters. Whether that turns into an action or not, it's a definite, you know, it's a it's a very different tone from Trump. Even though he's not jumping up and criticizing Trump directly, he's definitely taking a different tack. Yeah, I mean, I think tone-wise, yesterday in particular, during the press conference he had in Dallas, there was even like a, you know, Abbott hardly raises his voice beyond his like normal press conference voice. Um, mm-hmm. But but I will say that, that at the start of the press conference, there was something that stood out to me. He said, and, and, to, and others have pointed this out, he said that what happened to George Floyd was, quote, a horrific act of police brutality. And he said that we must ensure it never happens here in Texas. But the reality is that it has, right? Like maybe not under the same circumstances, but two police officers in the Dallas area were found guilty of murder in the last two years alone in the killing of Jordan Edwards and Botham John. And so when you think about the words that we're hearing and the fact that they are sounding maybe more forceful or more even empathetic toward the messaging that these protesters and organizers are bringing, does it mean anything if they don't do anything? And what's kind of the right yardstick to measure change here? If they don't do anything, it doesn't. They don't do anything, right? Uh, the you know, they we haven't shifted into that moment. If we're going to shift into that moment, where you find out whether this is just another instance that we're going to go through this cycle of you know violence and protest and defensiveness and, you know, then calm and then wait for the next set of violence, or whether this is the event that triggers some kind of actual um, conversation and change about uh, police practices and and some of the things that keep getting us back in this situation and this conversation. You know, I I think it's worth 
pointing out that pretty much no one is defending the actions of the Minneapolis police officers in this case. You know, this is a situation where the video is like you can't do anything but condemn that, you know, but that's not the only thing that people are protesting. That's it's it's not why people in Austin and Dallas and Houston are out in the streets is that, you know, there people are protesting a more systemic issue here, you know, in terms of police treatment of black people and also just like a lot of things where the police are kind of where this comes to a head. But there's issues of, you know, segregation, housing and the education system, you know, all different kinds of things where there are inequities here that people are frustrated about. So, you know, just because you're upset because of what happened, you know, with in this one particular video, there's a broader question of what kind of actions should be taken as a whole to address these kind of systemic things that have really brought people out on the streets. And I'll sort of be interested to see what the legislature's response is, if any, in 2021. I know Abbott has been, you know, prone to calling roundtables in the immediate after, you know, the immediate effect, or sorry, immediately after uh, horrible things happened in the state. I know he did that with El Paso and Santa Fe. Obviously, the George Floyd killing didn't happen here uh, in Texas. But he did say yesterday that the work starts before the legislature meets, which, of course, won't happen until January. Um, but another thing was, you know, with Sandra Bland's death in Texas, you know, Texas did eventually pass, you know, legislation, but the legislation that was passed was pretty watered down. So I'd be curious to see if uh, lawmakers really heed protesters' demands and what legislation is put forth um, by lawmakers just going into the new session. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said this before, at least to Matthew, who's going to not hear it again, but I think there, there's a part of this that's like a moment in time, but then there's also the part where what we're seeing this weekend, to echo Matthew, is not just about George Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. And his, we might know his name, but there are the names of so many others who we don't, and there are the broader issues where, yeah, this comes to a head in the most violent expressions or the most violent actions of systemic injustice, but it, it exists in so many other parts. And so, but I do think that if, if you do think about it as a moment in time, which our legislature is sort of more prone to do in, in responding to things like this, I mean, it, it will be really interesting to, to figure out the right yardstick to measure what they do and, and thinking about the way they have taken on this in the past and watered it watered it down, like Alex said. I think yeah, I, mean, yeah. one of the, I was gonna say, yeah, I think if they keep the pressure up, if the protesters can keep that pressure up, I think it can definitely push uh, politicians to change not just you know policing laws, but also some of the systemic stuff that we're talking about. And uh, I, for me, I, I think uh, going into the weekend will will demonstrate like if this is going to be a little bit more of a long long term thing. Um, because like like Ross said, his point about, you know, it happens and then there's, you know, protests and then it, it dies down and then it happens again. And I think if they can sustain that, I think that can really put the pressure on lawmakers to, to, to hopefully change that. Yeah, it, I think that's such a challenge for protesters, though, and activists is, you know, those of us, all of us here in this conversation have seen things, emergencies pop up so often in those, you know, 18 months in between legislative sessions. And you see the immediate response, you see Abbott, you know, being asked, Abbott and other state leaders being asked questions about what are you going to do about this? What needs to be done? They have these gatherings, but then the next emergency pops up and a lot of focus turns to that one. And it's, it's really hard to kind of keep that pressure on state leaders 
and keep that kind of thing at the front of mind, you know, when we, who knows what else is going to happen between June and January when the legislature meets again. You know, to pick up on what Alex said, I mean, we have a roundtable every time. And one of the things that does is get people talking. But one of the other things it does as a matter of politics is diffuse the situation. So after Walmart in El Paso or after the shooting in Santa Fe, you know, potentially after this, you get a moment where everybody calms down and you have a, a political system and a policy system that has a short attention span that needs a longer attention span to take care of systemic problems like this. All right. Well, we are going to say goodbye to Miguel and go to two more sponsors before we move on to our next topic. All right. Thanks, y'all. WGU Texas. Upskill, reskill. Earn a four-year degree faster. Accelerated, accredited online degrees in business, IT, healthcare, and education. Visit texas.wgu.edu slash admissions. And the Texas Municipal League. The Texas Municipal League is 1,150-plus cities building safer communities and a stronger economy. More at tml.org. So somehow there is still supposed to be an election this year. Uh, so let's do a quick, a quick check-in on that. Uh, this week, Julian Castro finally endorsed Joe Biden after drawing some attention for being slower than at least other Democrats, Democrats to get behind the former VP. Alex, tell us a bit more about this dynamic and, and what you reported on late last week before the endorsement came through. Yeah, so a lot of folks have been pointing out in the past couple weeks or months that the Castro brothers had not formally endorsed President, or sorry, uh, Joe Biden, so the presumptive uh, Democratic nominee. Uh, it was interesting because Joaquin Castro is obviously uh, the chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, so he holds a lot of weight there. Julian Castro was very supportive and vocal for Elizabeth Warren after he dropped out, and we just didn't see that same energy uh, for Biden when a lot of the other um, former uh, candidates, so Pete Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, even Warren and Beto O'Rourke, have really rallied behind Biden during this time. Uh, so their silence kind of stood out, um, even though both uh, Castro said that they were committed to defeating Donald Trump and would support the presumptive nominee. So yesterday, Castro, uh, Julian Castro, finally endorsed Biden in a tweet. Uh, the announcement, I guess, came after Biden delivered a speech, I believe it was in Philadelphia, really calling for, quote, like, real police reform after uh, George Floyd's death. So he, you know, used that speech to kind of say that that was the reason he was getting behind Biden. Of course, uh, Julian Castro had a pretty progressive policing platform back when he was running for president. So I feel like Biden speaking up about those issues uh, really struck a chord with him. I don't think uh, Joaquin Castro has formally endorsed uh, Biden, but he did tell us last week that he, well, a spokesperson for him told us last week that he was committed again to beating Donald Trump in November. You know, I always rib some of our colleagues over whether endorsements even matter. But but I do think, like, given the moment we're in, it will be interesting to see what this endorsement looks like in practice, given how, like you said, Castro really championed policing reforms during his campaign. I mean, I remember those moments where he would list the name of black and brown people who had been victims of police violence. And, and they were sort of really something on their own. And I do wonder how this will play out, how this endorsement will play out if we ever get back on the campaign trail, whatever that form that looks like. 
now that everyone's or more people's attention is on this issue. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, at the Democratic convention this week on Saturday, when Biden is slated to speak, um, you know, he is kind of ramping up the pressure and campaigning in Texas, which is a historically red state. And I think Castro actually speaks right before Biden, if I'm not mistaken. So it'll be kind of interesting to see what the dynamics there are. And if he you know, sort of pumps Biden up a little bit. And yeah, I'm just really interested in seeing how that plays out. See if he calls him this guy or something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that matters Vote your here conscience. is not so much, right? One of the things that matters here is not so much the endorsement as the non-endorsement. I thought the non-endorsement and his silence in a lot of ways was louder. This takes the pressure off. The pressure was all, why is it everybody endorsing Biden? Even the Democrats aren't excited about this. Case in point, the former mayor of San Antonio, and you know, you go off from there, take that sharp object off of the table, and now it's something Biden doesn't have to deal with, whether the endorsement going forward helps him or not. Yeah, you know, I think there have been two kind of questions that are surrounding the Biden campaign that this touches on. One is Texas, right? Like, how competitive does Biden plan to be in Texas? How much of a bid does he plan to make? He will uh, be speaking at the state Democratic convention on Saturday. Um, you know, the Democratic Party, local Democrats would like to take that as a sign that he's taking this state seriously. Um, you know, the Castro brothers are two of the most prominent Democrats in the state. And, you know, presumably if there's a strategy in Texas, they would be a part of it. The other thing is that there's been some questions about Biden's Hispanic outreach so far, you know, um, and, and, you know, Julian Castro and, and Joaquin Castro are two very prominent Hispanic Democrats too. So, um, you know, I think, Part of this has been, um, you know, how full-throated are the Castros and their support for Biden? And part of this, too, is how much is Biden working to win the support of, you know, what of, you know, people who might be interested in what the Castros think, whether that's people from Texas or whether those are, are Hispanic voters, you know, both of whom could be very important in the 2020 election. So I did also want to quickly get to the upcoming primary runoffs and special elections, which somehow are also still supposed to happen. Um, in the you know the low turnout state, these are elections that typically end up with a very 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 low turnout. Um, but obviously, any sort of campaigning has been complicated by the pandemic. Ross, you wrote a little bit about this this week. Walk us through the tough proposition the candidates on the ballot are facing. Well, you know, the, the first thing is what you what you said in your setup. I mean, runoffs are low turnout affairs, especially in a year where there's not a runoff that's like a, you know, governor's race or something giant like that. I mean, we do have a U.S. Senate race in there on the Democratic side that hasn't gotten as much attention, you know, as it as it might in another year. But it's not a real draw. You can say that it's an important race, but you can also say that it's not a real draw. So you have that problem. You have the problem of moving the primaries from May to mid-July, you know, when everybody's in, you know, set the pandemic aside for just a second. Mid-July is just a lousy time to have an election. It's just, you know, people are thinking about other things. Of course, it was delayed because of the pandemic. And then you have this problem with the pandemic that the candidates can't go door to door. They can't talk to town hall meetings. They can't stage debates except on little screens. And, you know, you have to wonder if anybody's going to watch a low turnout sort of semi-interesting set of races on their cell phones or their laptops or wherever they watch this kind of stuff. So it's really hard for the candidates to break through and get attention. 
I think, you know, if you're a, a politically active person, if you've ever given money or showed up on a primary voting list, you're probably going to get a ton of email. Uh, the door hanger business isn't going well, you know, where people go door to door and put flyers on your door. You know, that's contact that people want to avoid in a, in a social distancing environment. It's just weird to campaign. So all of the normal impediments to getting voters to turn out um, in a runoff in a year like this, particularly in midsummer, are, are compounded or doubled by the fact that you can't actually have social contact with the people you're trying to convince to give you money and give you votes. Yeah, I think like maybe the biggest challenge here is the attempts to find new voters or voters who might need kind of coercing or convincing to get go to the polls. You know, we we saw this happen uh, last week where uh, our Patrick Svitek broke the story about the Republican group Engage Texas that had been aiming to register a million voters, uh, a million new Republican voters, um, you know, disbanded and, and kind of I believe blamed uh, COVID nineteen for for part of that reason, and and so yeah, you know the people who are following this already, you know you can still reach them because they're on your mailing lists and they're tuned in to these channels that uh, already exist, and maybe you can even reach them easier because they're all sitting at home right now. But you know you can't knock on doors, you can't hold events, voter registration events, or or find ways to reach people who are not kind of already going to those channels, and I think that'll be the big challenge. And it's a it, that's an important challenge, you know, in the runoff, because the the field of voters is always really small. And then in the general election, obviously, because that can affect kind of what direction some of these races will go. Yeah, it does. It does undoubtedly feel like some of this will carry over into the campaigning for the general. You know, obviously, there's still so much we don't know about where things are headed and what spikes in cases may be ahead. But if you're a Democrat trying to flip a Republican-held seat, you've been limited, right? You're also part of the party that's been urging more restraint in public gatherings and outings during the pandemic. So do you then turn around and hold campaign rallies or block walks of any sort? And then there's also the, like, like Matthew said, the finding new voters, finding people who weren't on the rolls yet. And guess what? We don't have online voter registration. And so you can't actually stand outside of Congress or go to ACL or go to a march in Houston and register a bunch of people to vote because, I mean, I guess I guess in some ways you can, but you can't do it in the traditional ways and in the ways people had planned to do it ahead of November. You know, the other compound problem in November or going into November is going to be the presidential race is going to suck up all the oxygen. So if you're running for the state house or the state senate or a judgeship or something like that, you know, you're going to be way in the back row with uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden yelling in the front row. So it's going to be hard to get attention because of that on top of all these other things. Yeah, and after you're done waiting 2 hours in your socially distanced line, good luck getting to the bottom of the ballot. So <laughs> All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, the Texas Education Grant Makers Advocacy Consortium, Every Texan, WGU Texas, and the Texas Municipal League. On behalf of Alex, Miguel, Matthew, and Ross, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. Do I have to talk to you?